Hello, and welcome to History for Halloween, Part 2. Our footnoting history team has plucked from the annals of obscurity some delightfully macabre stories for you. I thought, though, that I would set the stage and get the ball rolling with a personal ghost story that happened to me as I was doing research in Britain. Back in the spring of 2010, I went on a whirlwind tour of various archives throughout southern England and Wales. As my oldest child was only seven months at the time, and the reason why the tour was a whirlwind, my husband and father came with me, ostensibly to help care for her, but in reality to drink ale in my husband's case and to hang out with me in the archives and my dad's. I had scheduled all our lodging in advance to make sure that at no point we were left out in the cold. We headed to Hereford as I wanted to look in the sermon collection at their cathedral, which is also home to the Mapamundi, and I felt particularly lucky to have located the Green Dragon, a relatively inexpensive hotel right in the city center and walking distance to the cathedral. It purports to have existed since the 16th century, but has enough renovations to provide a comfortable stay. Also, breakfast was included. I'm starting to sound like an advertisement, but I suppose that depends on how you view what came next. We arrived in town, settled in our rooms, had dinner at a Pizza Express, which is what we do, and then returned to the hotel to go to bed and start the next day bright and early. I put my sleeping daughter in her cot right next to our bed and attempted to fall asleep. As I lay there, a chambermaid walked right through our room. Literally. She floated through one wall, walked daintily across, and floated out another wall. She had on a white cap with dark ribbons, a long white apron, and a light-colored dress under it. I've dated her outfit to the early 20th century and usually describe her as Edwardian, but definitely not past the Great War. I did what any parent would do and snatched my child out of her cot and stuck her next to me, because if ghosts were floating about, they would obviously want my extremely adorable baby. However, the rest of the night passed uneventfully. The next morning, I told my husband and dad. That's right, my husband slept through the whole thing. Husband was not convinced. Dad was sad it didn't happen in his room. We went to the cathedral. I did my research. The archives, by the way, are lovely. Chilly, but most are. The archivists are a delight. If you have any reason to check out Hereford's Cathedral Archives, I strongly suggest it. I've googled the hotel, and except for one person suggesting that there was a poltergeist there, I can't find any information. Perhaps one of you will give it a try and report back? Hey everyone, Christine here with my contribution to our second annual History for Halloween episode. I decided to keep in theme with my topic from last year and do something ghost-related. And this particular story I found thanks to an article in the New York Times from December of 1886. Like most ghost stories worth investigating, this one begins in a time pre-haunting. So let's talk about Old Andalusia College, located near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we'll set ourselves in the year 1831. Living here was William Chapman, a man known for his work helping people overcome speech issues like stuttering. He lived along with his wife Lucretia, their children, and some of William's students. 
One day, their existence changed when a man called Mina showed up. He claimed to be low on funds, but to have connections to both the governor of California and Joseph Bonaparte, and he asked to stay the night. The Chapmans complied, and soon Mina, whose credentials were all a lie, began an affair with Lucretia. This, as you can probably all surmise, did not end well for William Chapman. In fact, it went so poorly for him that he soon took ill. His wife nursed his illness with chicken soup, but shockingly, he did not get better, he only got worse. After a painful period of lingering bad health, William Chapman passed away. Less than two weeks later, Lucretia and Mina did something that raised a few eyebrows. They got married. Talk about absolutely no mourning period. It didn't take long for the authorities to wonder whether William Chapman had ever really been ill, and soon the question of poison arose. More specifically, the suspected poison was arsenic, believed to have been administered by his wife and her lover while mixed with chicken soup. William's body was exhumed and examined for signs of poisoning. Soon, both Lucretia and Mina were arrested for murder. The scandalous trials of Lucretia and Mina were plastered all over the newspapers, who published lengthy columns detailing the proceedings. One of my favorite bits of testimony is that, during the period of alleged poisoning, a neighbor noticed that some of the leftover chicken was tossed into the yard, and a group of ducks ate it and died. So, I guess, you really shouldn't poison someone with food, then discard the food somewhere that animals could eat it, because it might point a giant finger at you. Eventually, Lucretia was given a verdict of not guilty, but Mina was sentenced to execution. He was executed in June of 1832, but he went to the gallows saying that he never killed William. Lucretia did it, and then she told him about it. I suppose he figured that if he was going to be executed, he was going to take her down with him in some form or another. We will, of course, never know what the actual details were. Was Lucretia his accomplice? Did she mastermind the death of her husband? Or was Mina swindling her all along? Following these events, it was understandably difficult to get anyone to want to live in the Andalusia building. But over the following years, there were reports from neighbors and passers-by that noticed lights in the windows despite believing the building to be unoccupied. Rumors swirled, and of course, the only possible explanation was that the ghost of William Chapman still resided there. I mean, there is really no other answer. What else could it be but a ghost? Fast forward now to our New York Times article of 1886, 50 years after the murder. Finally, the old building has a tenant, one who has invited his two friends from Philadelphia, Horace and Frank, over for a visit. As is always the case in this sort of thing, it was a dark and stormy night. So stormy that Horace and Frank decided to stay over and return to Philadelphia the following morning. They were shown to one of the many empty rooms, but Frank claimed he heard yelling, and Horace told him it was just the wind. Frank is also reported as having said that it was, quote, an elegant night for ghosts to play football, end quote. Maybe he shouldn't have used the G word if he didn't want to meet any. I'm just saying. Nevertheless, the pair settled down to sleep and Frank drifted off, but Horace couldn't because the howling of the wind kept him awake. Then, the extraordinary happened. According to Horace, a light began to fill the room, much like one from a candle. 
Surprised, Horace sat upright and found himself looking at a man of middle age, wearing a mantle around his shoulders. He had no lower limbs and appeared to be floating atop something that looked like, quote, a cloud of snow. And this being drifted around the room like a balloon. Stunned and wishing that he was anywhere but there, Horace demanded the specter tell him what he wanted. This exclamation woke Frank, who threw himself onto the floor in terror and began to pray. The being didn't have any desire to have a conversation with these two interlopers, so, according to Horace, the ghost hit him in the face, cutting his lip, and then silently exploded and shot up through the wall, leaving the two men cowering in a still eerily lit room. Eventually, sometime later, the ghostly light faded, and Horace lit a lamp and found nothing in the room was different than before. Everything was locked and closed, and they should have been perfectly safe. So they believe it could not have been a human who entered. The terrified men were definitely not going to sleep anymore, so they lit a fire in the sitting room and stayed up all night. In the morning, Horace was too embarrassed to talk of the experience, so he told their host that his bruised lip was due to hitting his face on a bedpost. Of course, this fib was pointless, since then he told his story to the press and it got published in papers like the New York Times. Ultimately, though, Horace said he wanted to go back and find out exactly what the ghost was, where Frank's conclusion was that no amount of money could ever make him spend another night in a place haunted, presumably by the man killed by chicken soup. Personally, I agree with Frank. Hello, this is Leslie Skousen, and my tale today is one of terrifying woe from the Victorian period. It's called The Old Nurse's Story by Elizabeth Gaskill. A young orphan girl named Rosamond had been sent to live in a rural manor with her aunt. The aunt was Miss Furnival, a graceful woman of advanced age who had spent most of her time shut in a study with an elderly friend named Miss Stark. Rosamond spent her days with a group of servants and a nurse who had been engaged to oversee her daily life. Rosamond was free to roam the grounds. She explored every crevice and came to know each room and its contents intimately. In one room, a painting had been set facing the wall. The cook said that the image was of Miss Furnival's older sister, Miss Grace, who had died tragically young. As they stared at the portrait of a young beautiful woman, they each began to hear the faint sound of organ music. Whatever is that? Rosamond asked, but the music began to fade as soon as it had begun. At the same time, elsewhere in the manor, the nurse was engaged in some needlepoint as she began to hear the soft organ music waft into the room. She approached the manservant, polishing shoes nearby. Is that the organ? she asked. James put the polish down and turned his head thoughtfully. It sounds like the wind more than music, he concluded. He returned to his polish. Folks did say that the old lord still plays the organ in the great hall, just as he used to when he was alive. But that was always just the talk of the town folk. The wind does strange things in the weeds. The nurse had been in the great hall. I have lifted the sheet over the organ there. It has been smashed to bits. It looked so brave and fine despite the splintered pieces. And even with the sun shining, my flesh began to crawl. I shut the organ up and ran away to my own bright and cheerful nursery. I should think the organ will never be restored. The following Sunday, there was a great snowstorm that kept everyone bound to the manor. 
At midday, the household discovered that Rosamond had gone missing. Everyone set upon a search, and it was very late indeed when James finally found a single set of footprints upon the snow. Rosamond was soon found at the edge of death from cold. The nurse took her inside and warmed her up. In a daze, Rosamond said, Did you find the other girl? I was following her. She was crying such pitiful cries. James remarked that there had only been one set of footprints. Perhaps the other young girl was just a trick of the snow. Rosamond was put to bed, but she did not recover quickly. The nurse was tending to clean towels when she began to hear organ music from the great hall, and just then she heard shrieking from Miss Rosamond's room. "'Whatever is the matter, sweet one?' the nurse demanded. Rosamond was inconsolable, banging at a window where a tiny image stood still upon the snow. The servants held her back as Rosamond's sobs only grew louder. "'You must open the door or the girl will freeze to death. You cannot leave her to sleep in the fells tonight. You cannot be so cruel!' Then Rosamond slapped the nurse hard across the face, and suddenly her eyes rolled back and she collapsed onto the bed. Miss Furnival, the aunt, sighed, a look of grief causing a shadow to cross her face. Miss Stark spoke up. She told a story of a foreigner engaged to teach the old lord how to play the organ. The foreigner had fallen in love with Miss Grace, but both sisters sought his attention. Finally, Miss Grace married the old foreigner in secret. As an act of revenge, Miss Furnival told her parents of the secret marriage. The foreigner denied it all and then fled. Her older sister was pregnant and disgraced and sent from her familial home. During the winter, a group of shepherds coming by came to tell the family of a scene in the woods, a young, beautiful girl with a dead child at her breast, sitting underneath a holly tree, frozen. Miss Furnival blamed herself. Her father abandoned the organ and died soon after. As Miss Stark finished her story, the organ music began in earnest, and Rosamond rose from her bed. But instead of climbing at the window, she pointed to the door. Miss Furnival turned to see an apparition, her father, standing over her sister, ordering her to leave the house, into the cold snow. When Miss Grace refused, he raised his hand and struck her soundly across the face. Miss Furnival covered her face with both hands. Oh, father, father, spare the innocent child. The lights went out. Rosamond regained clarity but Miss Furnival collapsed to the ground. The elderly aunt was carried to her room. She developed a fever and began to moan in her sleep. As the moon came out from the cloudy sky, she said quite clearly, Alas, alas, what is done in youth can never be undone in age. What is done in youth can never be undone in age. And with that, Miss Furnival died. I'm Lucy, and my frightening footnote comes from the early 19th century history of Oxford, home of scholarship, lost causes, and quite a few ghosts. There are several versions of the story of how the devil came to Brasenose. I'm partial to the one that I was told as a wide-eyed visiting student, although an alternate version says that the enemy of mankind appeared in all his winged terrors and decamped over the Bodleian, pulling an unfortunate gentleman by the hair. The recorded facts are limited to the location of the devil sighting, a narrow lane bordered on both sides by high walls, and the fact that there was a death. Unsurprisingly, for a society dedicated to the occult, Brasenose's Hellfire Club never officially existed, but it's far from improbable that it might have done. 
There was a notorious Hellfire Club in the mid-18th century, run by a dissolute nobleman, headquartered in a ruined abbey, and allegedly responsible for everything from drunkenness to devil worship. That upper-class Oxford students of the early 19th century might have chosen to emulate such notorious excesses of the romantic, bad old days is, in itself, plausible enough. According to a 19th century history of the college, the Hellfire Club ran a brief but glorious course from 1828 to 1834. It met in private rooms, looking out on the narrow Brazenose Lane, described as a dismal, lonely place, with its high dead wall on one side and the iron-barred windows of the college on the other. In these rooms, on a dark and misty night, the men of the Hellfire Club met. They drank much and blasphemed more. In the lane, a college tutor was returning home. Here, he saw a tall stranger in a long cloak outside the college windows. What he thought he saw, at first, was this stranger helping someone through the window. Intent on stopping this breach of college regulations, he hurried forward. According to an account by a supposed eyewitness, he suddenly knew with a positive conviction that the stranger on the street was no mere man. What the tutor saw was a leader of the infamous club being pulled by violence through the bars of the window that left marks on his face as if they were themselves heated by infernal fires. As the horrified tutor hurried around to the college door, he was met by the terrified club members. In the middle of a speech, the owner of the rooms had fallen suddenly dead on the floor. The college books record a death from delirium tremens. Legend still says that the devil had come when summoned. Hello, my name is Nathan, and I don't have a story for you. No, this is much worse. I am going to summon a demon. When we talk about the history of magic in the Middle Ages, there are a lot of modern preconceptions that have to be overcome. Hollywood depictions make it seem like witches and wizards abounded in the Middle Ages, when in fact this was not the case. That said, there were practitioners of what we would consider the magical arts in the Middle Ages, and these actually fell into several types. First, there was low magic, healing, herbalism, simple charms used or worn by people to encourage spousal fidelity or love or to prevent harm. Occasionally, we find instances of people being accused of maleficium, uh, evil acts, causing crops to fail, cattle to die, or freak hailstorms that damage property. And then there was high, or learned, magic, practiced by people with education, particularly by members of the clergy. One form of this learned magic was necromancy, a word that is a corruption of negromancy, or the manipulation of dark forces. Simply put, necromancers sought to adapt established Christian formulas from things like exorcisms and blessings, in conjunction with the occasional bit of arcane knowledge from folklore, Muslim, or Jewish text, or things that were just made up entirely, in order to conjure and command demons. Whereas an exorcist drove out demons and ritually purified objects, 
Necromancers invoke the powers of heaven and its inhabitants to force a demon to carry out a specified action. There are only a handful of Necromancers manuals that survive from the Middle Ages, and they're all terribly academic and can actually be a little dry at times. While there are some love spells, invocations to arouse hatred between friends, cause someone to go crazy, revive the dead, find a lost object, or turn invisible, the Necromancers, if they indeed performed these rituals, seem to have been mostly interested in obtaining secret, arcane knowledge. But my personal favorite invocation, which comes from a 15th century necromancer's manual, is to summon the demon Bartha and three of his minions to bring you a flying throne that will bear you to wherever you want to go in the world. Now, to perform the ritual, the manual says you must first go to a high and secret place in good weather where there is no wind. There, you say prayers to the Virgin Mary, along with some other prayers and psalms, after which you draw a circle, as shown in a diagram in the manuscript, along with some pseudo-Hebrew characters. On the north side of the circle, you place a jar of ashes and wheat. On the eastern side, fire and salt. On the west, water and chalk. Then, sitting in the middle of the circle, facing north, you recite the names of the demons and invoke them to come. When they appear with the flying throne, you recite an incantation, ordering them to bear you without harm to your body or soul to wherever you want to go, binding them by the names of the highest angels of heaven. I'm now going to read this incantation, but I'm going to have to do it in Latin because it just loses something when you translate it to English. Rex Barta, et duce saltem baltem et galtem, Portateme placebiliter, sine temore et impedimento et periculo aliquo mei corpores et anime, usque ad talem locum, et suaviter me levate et suaviter me deponite. O tu rex parte, et o vos principes saltem baltem galtaira, vos potenter invoco ucito et velociter me ducatis usque ad talem locum, sine omni temore et periculo mei corporis et anime, et ad hoc et vos invoco et coniuro potenter, et exorciso per hec angolorum nomina altissima, qui in aire sunt potentes, mastiesel, emendel, emethel, sangel, emeal, venoel, gerbon, seutan, tairobe, tenien, terge, Gerebon, Gamelorum, Tubairum, Ficari, Gise, Austeron, Boreal, Gemeloi, Garoen, Saipro, Ebeli, Aurora, Subseloi, Siego, Aphone, et Zephyrim, Boreoth, Beolthore, Aphorax, Aquelio, Oreal, Faelion. Perhec nomina vos invoco, et conjuro, et exorciso, et constringo, ut sine more veniatis ad me existentem in hoc loco, et multum me suaviter benigne deferatis et ducatis ad talem locum, sine omni temore, lesione, et periculo mei corporis et anime. Sic fiat, fiat. Amen. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.